Please take your Bibles and turn together to Acts chapter 12. We're one week ahead in terms of synchronizing the catechism with the catechism classes, and so I thought in light of International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, we would focus this morning on Acts 12. We're going to read verses 1 through 12 this morning. It's a familiar story, but it is a story that many of our brothers and sisters throughout the world can very much identify with. So we begin at the first verse. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. Because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison. But constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod is about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, And the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him, and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first of the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. So far, the reading of God's holy word. In the hymn, Jesus, I, my cross have taken, we confess that the Christian life can be one of suffering. When we sing that hymn, we corporately confess our willingness to take up our cross for the sake of Jesus and our willingness to be destitute, despised, and forsaken. When we sing that hymn, we declare that Christ is all Thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known, yet how rich is my condition. God and heaven are still my own. In the second verse, we confess our willingness to be despised by the world. 
Let the world despise and leave me. They have left my Savior too. Foes may hate and friends may shun me. In the third verse, we confess our willingness to be troubled and distressed, believing that those troubles will drive us to the breast of our Savior. And then in the fourth verse, we confess that God's own hand will guide us to heaven's eternal day. Regardless of the suffering, God will bring us from grace to glory. Soon our earthly mission will close. Our pilgrim days will pass. Hope will change to glad fruition, faith to sight, and prayer to praise. Now, congregation, it is relatively easy for us to sing a hymn like that and to confess with our lips that we are willing to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. We still live in a free land and are permitted to worship without threats or harassment. I may be wrong, but I suspect that not a single person in this building has been beaten, imprisoned, or tortured for the sake of the gospel. But brothers and sisters, that has not always been the case in the history of the church. In fact, it has ordinarily been quite the opposite. When you study church history, you discover that in every age, Christians have suffered. There was persecution in the early church in the Middle Ages, during the Reformation, in the 17th and 18th centuries, and there is persecution in many areas of the world today. It is said that right now, persecution is a daily reality for more than 360 million Christians worldwide. Yes, Christians are even dying every day in many parts of the world, destitute, despised, forsaken. Yet we believe that through it all, the sovereign Lord sustains his people and builds his church. History has proven that persecution does not ultimately destroy the church, but rather it builds and strengthens it. Tertullian, a Christian writer and defender of the faith who died in 225, said to his enemies, we multiply whenever we are mown down by you. The blood of Christians is the seed of the church. About 100 years after Tertullian, Jerome said, the church of Christ has been founded by shedding its own blood, not that of others, by enduring outrage, not by inflicting it. Persecutions have made it grow, martyrdoms have crowned it. It seems unlikely, and yet it is true. The church often multiplies when Christians are cut down. In our scripture reading, we see how the early church in Jerusalem was persecuted by Herod the king. But as difficult as it may have been, the Lord used it to reveal his power in a remarkable way. The Lord showed the church that he is sovereign and all who oppose him will fail. God used it to make the church bold and courageous in her testimony and to bring glory to himself. As we consider Acts 12, verses 1 through 11, and the words we sang a moment ago, may your congregation endure tribulation, I want you to notice three things about the church in Jerusalem. 
It was a persecuted church. It was a praying church. And it was a protected church. First, a persecuted church. Would you look with me, please, in your Bibles to verse 1? Verse 1. Now, about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church that he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. The New Testament mentions five Herods, all of them wicked, greedy, power-hungry, and self-serving. The Herod of our text is Herod Agrippa I. He was the grandson of Herod the Great, who was king when Jesus was born, who ordered all the infants to be murdered in Bethlehem. The Herod of our text was educated and raised in Rome and made king in Judea and surrounding territories by Gaius the emperor. He was very eager to please the Jewish people so as to maintain his position. He knew that if he was popular, he was powerful. And like the other four Herods in the New Testament, he lusted after power. One way to win the approval of the Jewish authorities was to harass the despised Christians. They were a nuisance. Thus, he had James, the brother of John, arrested and put to death with the sword. Now, think about that. What a troublesome time that was for the believers. James had been one of the prominent leaders in the Jerusalem church. But tragically... He became the first of the apostles to suffer martyrdom. How the church must have wept over the loss of this beloved apostle. Yes, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Yet for the church, it was extremely painful. As they grieved their great loss, they most likely remembered the words of Jesus who had once said to James, You will indeed drink my cup. The cup that Jesus drank was the cup of suffering and death. When Jesus said to James, you will indeed drink my cup, he was predicting that James would suffer for his master and die in his service. When Herod killed him with a sword, James drank of the cup of which Jesus drank. Now, brothers and sisters, it may be significant that our text specifically mentions death with the sword. Why might that be significant? The law of Moses stipulated in Deuteronomy 13 that if a man led others into idolatry, enticing them to serve other gods, he was to be stoned. But if a man enticed the inhabitants of a whole city to serve other gods, then the man had to be slain with a sword. By slaying James with a sword in accordance with the requirements of Deuteronomy 13, Herod pleased the Sanhedrin greatly. He was declaring James to be a false teacher, a worshiper of false gods, which of course was sheer nonsense. Well, verse 3 says that the killing of James was such a success for Herod that he decided to move on to the next one to arrest and execute Peter as well, the chief spokesman of the apostles. Verse 3 tells us that this took place during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
It was that time of the year when Jews from all over came up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. It was a week-long feast during which the city was packed with Jewish pilgrims. Hundreds of thousands flooded the city. It was an opportune time to arrest Peter for the news of it would travel like wildfire among the masses and Herod would be praised by all. However, since it was the time of the Passover, Herod did not want to break any of the Jewish laws associated with those special days. And so he decided to postpone the execution until after the feast was over. In the meantime, Peter was put under heavy guard. Verse 4 says, Herod put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Peter was guarded by 16 soldiers who constantly rotated to keep a steady eye on him. A soldier was chained to him on each side, and two more soldiers were stationed outside the cell door. Peter was under maximum security like a dangerous criminal. Congregation, why do you suppose Peter was so strictly guarded? Please turn back with me for a moment to Acts 5. Acts 5. We read in verses 12 to 16 that many signs and wonders were done at the hands of the apostles. Verse 15, the people, uh, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Verse 16 adds that a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem bringing sick people and those who were, tempted, uh, who were tormented by unclean spirits and they were all healed. Then... In verses 17 and following, we read that the high priest and those who were with him were infuriated by their popularity and locked them up. Then look at verse 19. Go to verse 19. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Out. In the morning, when the Sanhedrin assembled, they sent to the prison to have them brought. But according to verse 22, the officers came and did not find them in the prison. They returned and said, verse 23, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely, and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Congregation, why do you suppose Herod put Peter under maximum security. In all likelihood, the Sanhedrin warned him to be exceptionally cautious. Peter had miraculously escaped from prison once before. He had also demonstrated remarkable power in the numerous miracles he performed in Jerusalem. We read in Acts 9 that he even raised the dead. No, Herod wasn't going to take any risks. No risks whatsoever. His prize prisoner wasn't going to escape. As soon as the Passover was complete, Peter would be brought before the people for execution just like James. Brothers and sisters, similar to his master, Peter had done nothing but good for the people of Jerusalem. 
Everywhere he went, he showed genuine compassion for the sick, lame, poor, and needy. He preached the cross. It presented the way of forgiveness and salvation through the blood of Jesus. He proclaimed the truth about the way of reconciliation. And yet here he was, locked in a cell, chained on both wrists. What was his response to all of this? His life could soon be over. The sword that killed James was sharp and ready. Children, what was his response? Acts 12, verse 6 says that on the night before his execution, when Herod was about to bring him out, Peter was, what? Sleeping. Sleeping. Would you be sleeping? He obviously understood the comforting truth of what we confess in Lord's Day 1. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Peter could face life and death because he belonged to his faithful Savior. Like the psalmist in Psalm 3, he could lay down and sleep believing that the Lord sustained him. Later in his life, Peter had the privilege of, of writing two inspired epistles of the New Testament. In his first epistle, he encouraged persecuted believers with these comforting words. Listen. If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. And then in chapter 5 of his first epistle, Peter said, cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Peter himself was able to do that. During what appeared to be his last night on earth, he slept soundly. He knew what it meant to cast all his anxieties on the Lord. Congregation, we know how the story ends, right? But Peter didn't know that he would be rescued. James was not rescued. In fact, Peter knew that something like this would take place. In the 21st chapter of John's gospel, the risen Jesus said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. Peter knew that he would die as a martyr someday. 
And yet he was able to sleep in his prison cell, for he was assured that he was a forgiven sinner and he accepted the sovereign will of God. What a wonderful illustration of complete trust. The chains on his wrists, the hardness of the cell, the threat of death, nothing could disturb his rest. Peter knew that he was safe in the arms of sovereign love. God is more powerful than Herod. He is able to tear down prisons. He's able to deliver his people from all calamities if he so chooses. Congregation, if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, you can go to bed this evening casting all your cares upon God because he cares for you, for you. If you have fears about the future, the decline of genuine Christianity in North America, the advance of Islam in the world, and the brutalities against Christians, if these things trouble you, know that God is near. If you're troubled by our wicked world, believe that God is greater than all your troubles. But now let's depart from the prison for a moment. And let's go to the home of John Mark's mother. As we come to verse 5, we note that the church may have been a persecuted church, but it was also a praying church. It was also a praying church. Look at verse 5. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant or earnest prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Constant prayer, earnest prayer, fervent prayer. According to verse 12, many believers had gathered together in the home of John Mark's mother to make intercession for Peter. They were still mourning the recent execution of James, and now they were grieving for the imprisonment of Peter. Would they lose two of their church pillars in such a short time? Would Peter lose his head just like the beloved James? The believers crowded together in the house to pray long into the night. Dear friends, this wasn't a 15-minute prayer service. It lasted for hours. Congregation, as we consider these believers who had gathered together at the home of John Mark, John Mark's mother, I am reminded of believers today in places like North Korea, China, Iran, Syria, I believe some 60 countries of the world who are huddled quietly in someone's home, in someone's basement, someone's shed or barn for prayer and worship just like these believers. And then, when I see empty places in our churches, I wonder about ourselves. We are able to worship in comfort and peace, but the attendance in our churches is not always what it should be. We don't have to carry our children through forests and dangerous places in order to come and worship. We have comfortable, warm cars in which to drive them. 
And yet it seems many North American Christians fail to make the effort to faithfully bring their families on the Lord's Day or to instruction classes during the week. Now, we fully understand, of course, that people may be absent because of sickness in the family. We also understand that some seniors struggle with failing health and the challenges of medication. We understand all that. But when I look at North American churches and even our own churches, I think that perhaps we could learn something from our persecuted brothers and sisters who sometimes have to travel on foot for miles with their little ones in tow in order to worship. Surely, we who are blessed with every modern convenience, modern transportation, warm, comfortable, safe buildings, and well-equipped nurseries, surely we should make use of the opportunities that God gives us to worship. We could very well be moving toward a time of persecution right here. Therefore, we are in great need of preaching, prayer, singing, and fellowship. Now is the time to prepare ourselves and our children by coming faithfully on the Lord's Day and for midweek Bible studies to be instructed by the Word. Now's the time to prepare. Please understand that we don't want people coming faithfully just to keep the elders from knocking on your door. We want you to come because you realize your need and the immense privilege of corporate worship, fellowship, and Bible study. A great God and loving Savior calls you here. What an awesome Lord. I fear that while our persecuted brothers and sisters are gathering as often as possible to be fed by the word and to fellowship with God's people, we here in the West are becoming increasingly apathetic, bored, and lazy. I fear that many North Americans can pack up their kids in the van for a ball game, a hockey game, a family birthday party, or to eat at a restaurant, but they find it inconvenient to pack up the family for biblical teaching and prayer and fellowship. Consequently, we see churches whose existence is threatened because of poor numbers. People just aren't coming. While the attendance here at Bethel is quite good, for which I commend you, I nevertheless exhort you, don't allow the love of personal ease, fleshly pleasure, business, or whatever else cause you to neglect what is so vitally important. Gathering faithfully with the people of God is well worth the effort. I believe that, that one of the greatest gifts you could give to your children is joyful, disciplined, regular participation in church life. Because, brothers and sisters, the time may come in the not-too-distant future when we cannot do what we are doing here today. Someday you may look back and say, oh, how privileged we were. Some of you may one day say to your grandchildren, I remember the time when we could worship freely at Bethel. 
Oh, how we took those days for granted. How I wish we had used those opportunities more wisely. So the believers were gathered at the home of John Mark's mother to sincerely and passionately pour out their petitions before the Lord. They understood something of what James, the Lord's brother, would later write in his epistle. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. These believers knew that God had the power to release Peter. Therefore, while the rest of Jerusalem was sleeping, they were praying. Is that why Peter was peacefully resting in his prison? Is that why he was able to throw off anxiety? Is that why he was so strong in the Lord? He had a house full of Christians praying, asking for God's blessing upon him. Peter was undoubtedly comforted, strengthened, and refreshed in prison through the constant prayers of God's people. We are reminded here, brothers and sisters, of the importance of prayer in the life of the church. Not merely individual prayer, although that is certainly important as well, but also corporate prayer. We know the nearness of God as we pray together, as we pray with one heart, mind, desire, and goal. As we join together in prayer, we honor the head of the church Together we declare our dependence on Him and acknowledge Him as Lord over all. Together we confess our confidence in Jesus Christ who builds His church. When God's people pray together, we acknowledge that our only hope is in the Lord. Our life, our church, our persecuted brothers and sisters throughout the world are all in His hands. Our ability to face trials, temptations, and tribulations, our ability to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him is determined by the Lord God. A praying church is a dependent church, a powerful, effective, fruitful, God-honoring church. As a church in Jerusalem gathered for prayer, So the church today should go to the throne of grace for all our concerns, difficulties, trials, and pains. God alone has the power to deliver. Brothers and sisters, as the church was praying, the Jewish celebration of the Passover had just come to a close. Children, do you recall what happened after that very first Passover in Egypt. The Lord rescued his people from slavery with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He set them free from the house of bondage. The annual celebration of the Passover was a reminder of the great power of Yahweh who rescued his people from the cruelty of Pharaoh. When the church in Jerusalem prayed that night for Peter, they could have the confidence that even as God rescued his people from the prison house of Egypt almost 1,500 years ago, so God had the power to rescue Peter from the prison of Herod. 
The God who proved his sovereign power in the Exodus after that first Passover is the God who could open the doors of Peter's cell. The church could approach God's throne of grace fully confident that he had the ability to fulfill their request if he so desired. In congregation, when you approach the throne of grace, you can come before God with the assurance that he hears and has the power to deliver. So, first of all, the church in Jerusalem was a persecuted church. Second, it was a praying church. And third, it was also a protected church. It was also a protected church. Look with me, please, to verse 7. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise, quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. God sent his angel to deliver Peter in response to the prayers of the church. He sent his angel to prove to everyone, including Herod, that even four squads of soldiers cannot keep the one whom God decides to release. The Lord was able to take Herod's prized prisoner right from under his nose. Trained, rugged, highly skilled soldiers are no match for God's angel. Maximum security prison is no challenge for the power of the Lord. Herod thought that everything was in order, but he failed to consider the supremacy of Almighty God. As Peter woke up and saw the angel standing in front of him and the light radiating in the prison, he thought he was dreaming. The angel said to him, come on, Peter, get up quickly. It's time to go. The chains fell off his wrists without waking up the two soldiers who were on the other end of those chains. They remained sound asleep. Even the heavenly light did not awaken them. Peter thought this was just a pleasant dream. It wasn't really happening. His mind was groggy and confused. But the angel said to him, put on your garments and sandals and follow me. Peter did as the angel instructed, but he still did not comprehend what was happening. They went past the first and second guard posts and no one stopped them. They came to the iron gate which led to the city and what happened? Verse 10 tells us the iron gate opened to them of its own accord and they went through it. The heavy gate opened without human hands. The sovereign Lord was leading the way. In the exodus from Egypt, God opened the waters for Israel to pass through the sea. In Peter's exodus from Herod's prison, God opened up the gate, making Peter a free man. The angel led Peter down a street, safely away from the prison, and then suddenly disappeared. It wasn't until then that Peter realized what was really happening. This wasn't a dream. It wasn't a vision. This was the Lord's angel delivering him from the hand of Herod and from the expectation of the Jewish people. Peter was really free. Herod had plans. But God had other plans. 
Herod wanted to exalt himself through the death of Peter, but instead God exalted himself through Peter's miraculous escape. Herod's power was overruled by the omnipotence of God. Now, congregation, we should never think that God was successful in delivering Peter, but he blew it with James. God fumbled the ball with James. You win some, you lose some. God won with Peter, but he lost with James. Not at all. The martyrdom of James was not because the Lord was weak or incompetent or because he wasn't paying attention. It was not because Herod was more powerful. God was sovereign over Herod in both cases. With the apostle James, God was glorified through martyrdom and death. With the apostle Peter, God was glorified through deliverance. God chooses to bring honor and praise to himself through the death of one, and he chooses to glorify himself through the life of another. James was martyred, Peter was saved, and through both of them, God proved his grace and power. Through martyrdom, those who are left behind are strengthened in their faith and testimony. Through Peter's miraculous deliverance, the Christian church was reminded that they were under God's protection. God sends his heavenly messengers to protect his people, his church, from those who would destroy them. The enemies of the cross can do nothing to God's people without his permission. Dear friends, as God directed and protected the church in Jerusalem from the attacks of the evil one, so he also directs and protects his church today. He builds his church through the death of one and through the life of another. Whether by life or death, God is glorified. <clears throat> through the death of James and the escape of Peter, you and I, you and I are called to fix our attention on him who is Lord of all. No one can stand against him. Herod cannot successfully resist him. At the end of this chapter, children, do you know what happens to Herod? Do you know what happens to Herod? He's eaten by worms and dies because he did not give glory to God. Self-exalting Herod became weaker than worms and perished in sin. He discovered that those who oppose God and Christianity are on the losing team, ultimately. In the middle of one of his lavish demonstrations of self-exaltation, an angel of the Lord struck him and, verse 23, he was eaten by worms. It does not say that he died and was eaten by worms. No, he was eaten by worms and died. The message is very powerful. Trust Christ. Give yourself to the service of his church and you will be blessed even if you suffer martyrdom. Give yourself to the service of self and you will die in your sin without a savior.
The Lord is reminding each one of us today that he is Lord. Then congregation, be encouraged to serve him. By the power of the Holy Spirit, be bold and courageous to spread the gospel of Christ and leave the outcome to God. Follow Jesus. And even though you may perhaps suffer tribulation in this life, the ultimate victory will be yours. Victory in Christ. Victory in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, once again, we are mindful of so many of our brothers and sisters who are suffering. And we ask your forgiveness, Lord, when we, when we neglect them, when we forget them, when we are so self-centered that we feel as long as I am secure, as long as I am well, as long as I have food on my table, then I have no concerns for others. Lord, if we have such an attitude, would you forgive us? As your word calls us to remember the prisoners as though chained with them. Will you help us to remember our brothers and sisters? We know, Lord, that there are many at this very moment who are imprisoned we're suffering beyond what we are even capable of imagining. We're treated less than animals. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you will draw near to them. But Lord, we thank you for the stories that we hear of those who by your power of your spirit, and by the promises of your word, remain strong. We thank you that we hear of believers being willing to face great dangers in order to worship together, to fellowship together, to hear your word, to study the scriptures, to encourage each other. And Father, we ask your forgiveness when we are apathetic and complacent. Here in North America, worship is more of an inconvenience. We'd rather be out boating or golfing watching sports. Forgive us, Lord, should that be our attitude here at Bethel. Fill each one of us with the realization of the immense privilege that it is to worship and fellowship together. Make us a praying church. Make us strong in our dependence on you. Hear us, Lord, and receive our praises as we conclude. In the name of our suffering Savior, we pray. The one who now is highly exalted, given the name which is above every name. In his name we pray, amen.